Good morning. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. And this morning we'll be continuing our study of the Gospel of John. We'll look at the, um, the narrative of the adulterous woman brought to Jesus. And while you turn there, as those of you arrive there, you'll notice something interesting about this text. I'm assuming in virtually all of your Bibles there'll be some form of brackets around 7.53 to 8.11. My ESV has it in double brackets with a footnote. And so on top of the text itself, we've got to deal with questions raised about, is this actually even part of the text? But I'd like to begin by reading it and then having a word of prayer and then we'll move forward. You'll find the notes to this morning's message in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text on the back of the bulletin. John 7, 53 to 8, 11. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? They said this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. Lord God, as we um, consider some of the difficulties around this passage, I pray that you would um, give us faith, that you would um, help us to wrestle through issues of text and canon. And as we study this passage, that we would be edified um, as we consider and reconsider the glory of our Lord. I ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're to deal with this passage in three points. First, we've got to address the issue of the brackets, the issue raised in your Bibles about the validity of this passage. Second, we'll, we'll look at the actual test that the Pharisees and scribes bring. And third, we'll consider how Jesus masterfully outmaneuvers them. So let me just read to you what my double bracket says in my ESV. It says here, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. And I'm guessing most of your Bibles say something like that. And so we're going to have to first ask the question, does this text belong here in John's gospel? Now, before we even address that, we've got to address how to even think through such things. I remember when I became a new Christian, I just sort of assumed we had some sort of glow-in-the-dark Greek New Testament somewhere that was perfect in all, of its, in all of its readings, and we were just copying that. And I remember initially when I learned, no, actually the Bibles you're reading are the product of, of cross-referencing and examining and, and deciding between thousands of readings from thousands of texts. And when I first learned that, it was, it was a challenge to my faith. How, how do we deal with a Bible when there's, when there's variation, when there's disagreement, when there is 
um, questions raised. And I was hoping there'd just be one sort of solidified magic, here's your, here's your text. Additional questions. How do, we, how do we have an inerrant authoritative scripture if there's questions being raised? Now, there's, there's one way to get around this. In Roman Catholicism, the church claims the magisterial authority to simply tell you what the text is. And so the church in the 4th and 5th century made the Latin the official translation, the Vulgate. And then in the 16th century, the Pope authorized the Textus Receptus. And then a little later, they also added some books. They authorized the Apocrypha at the Council of Trent. And so in Rome, what you've got is an authoritative church that simply tells you what the text is. But it doesn't solve the problem of alteration. As I've pointed out, Rome added, they, they canonized the Apocrypha in the 16th century. So it's not as though even there you've got a firm list going through. No, the, the reality is we've got to wrestle with these issues. I think God intends us to wrestle with these issues. And let me help explain. I use this example frequently when I'm teaching on this. Here I've got a New American Standard Bible. And here I've got my English Standard Bible. So here's a question. You can answer. Is this the Word of God? New American Standard. Yes. Okay. ESV. Is this the Word of God? Okay, and I can hold up other translations. Are these identical? Are these exactly the same? Okay, then how do we affirm this is the word of God, this is the word of God, and they're not the same? Well, what we mean by affirming the word of God, if, you, if you're to press me, is that we're affirming the inerrancy, the, the, the authority of what was originally written. What we sometimes refer to as the autographs or the autographer, what Paul wrote, what John wrote. And so I would argue that the, my ESV Bible is the word of God to the degree your, your Bible, whatever translation you're using, is the Word of God to the degree that it accurately translates what was originally written. Now, the good news is, I think, for more, most of our modern, um, literal, formal translations, that degree of accuracy is high, very high, very, very high. But it's also one of the reasons why, is when I'm teaching through the gospel, if I think my translation um, could be improved upon, especially if another translation I think gets it better. I feel free to say, and you've heard me say this from time to time, I think the New American Standard does a better job here or other translations. Because the authority is what was actually written. And so we got we to come to grips with what was actually written. So what we're asking with John 7 is not, um, that shouldn't challenge our understanding of inerrancy. We're simply asking, did John write this? Is this part of John's gospel? That's the question we're trying to address. Um, so with that as an introduction, briefly, and I'll spend most of my time in the ABF going much more deeply into this if you want to. There's a lot more to be said about textual criticism. My short answer here is no. No, I do not believe the story of the adulterous woman was part of John's original composition of his gospel. Now, there's three things you can ask about it. Is it, is it part of John's gospel? I'm going to suggest to you, I'm going to argue for the next few minutes, no. Did it happen? I I'm, think almost certainly it did. And then there's a third question. Could it still be scripture? It might be. But the one I'm clear on, and the one that I think matters, and the one I care about, is I do think it can be shown, this, this doesn't belong here. This was not part of the original narrative. It breaks up the narrative. Um, so if, that, if, if this issue, and we have to deal with this quickly and lightly, troubles you, stick around for the ABF or listen to it on the podcast, we'll, we'll talk more in detail about this. But let me give you some reasons why I don't think this belongs here, why I think the brackets that most of your translations put around the text are, are right. Um, first, internal evidence, evidence from within John's gospel. 
And the first and most obvious one is that this text clearly breaks the flow of the text. Clearly breaks the flow of the text. Let me show what I mean. Last week, we ended with the controversy about Jesus. He's been teaching on the great day, the Feast of Booths. He stood up and he cried out. And then we saw the responses. And the, and the people are divided and there's a tumult. And the guards come back to the Pharisees and they say, why didn't you arrest him? And they say, no one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees get upset and they say, look at what they say here. Verse 47, the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. And Nicodemus, who had gone with him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. I'm going to argue that 8.12, the verse right after the adulterous woman, picks up and completes this. And if you don't read it that way, 8.12 has a hard time making sense. Let me show you from the end of this passage. Verse 9, chapter 8, verse 9. But when they heard it, the, the people, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone to the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on, sin no more. Again, Jesus spoke to them. Who's them? Everybody just left. It was just Jesus and this woman. Who's them? And if you keep reading, it becomes clear who them is. Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing, he's, he's talking to the Pharisees. And we, I mentioned this last week and I'll make a big deal of this next week. Jesus citation here. I am the light of the world. He's referencing Isaiah nine, which in Isaiah nine, verse one, Galilee is going to see a great light. The people who walked in darkness will see a great light. Galilee. Of the Jordan. Jesus is answering the challenge. Does a prophet arise out of Galilee? And Jesus says, yeah, Isaiah 9. I'm the light of the world. Not only does the them in verse 12 make sense if you link it back to the Pharisees, what Jesus actually says completely rebuts, completely answers, and confounds them. It makes perfect sense that way. So the first reason I don't think this belongs is because it it interrupts the flow of the narrative. Um, It interrupts the flow of the narrative. Second... It has a significant amount of differing grammar and style. Now, this is harder to nail down, but there's a lot of phrases and a lot of turns of phrase that John simply doesn't use found here that are found all over the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Something as simple as looking at um, verse 58, sorry, chapter 8, verse 1. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again to the temple. All the people came to him. He sat down and taught them. Jesus is sitting down teaching people all over Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He doesn't do it in John. Simply doesn't, just not the way John describes it. It's not the way John talks about it. And as we go through this passage, we will go through this passage. I'll highlight a couple other stylistic examples of this. Another simple example. In John's gospel, the only other time test is used is Jesus testing Philip. He asked him, where will you get the bread? Nowhere else in John's gospel is anyone testing him. It's all over the synoptics. The Pharisees and the scribes test him, test him, test him. Also, scribes is never mentioned in John's gospel. All over the synoptics. So, well, that's just some simple examples. So, 
it breaks the flow of the text and it evidences a significant amount of phrases, words, style choices that, that alter from how John writes. You also then have the external evidence as well. And here we're dealing with the issue of manuscripts and how we make our New Testament and how we um, formulate them. And I'll, I'll move quickly because for, for many of us, this is, this is uh, complicated and uh, it, I don't have the time to really fully unpack this. We'll try to do some in the ABF. But let me just read a quote from D.A. Carson on his commentary summarizing the manuscript issue. Quote, D.A. Carson, modern English versions are right to rule it off from the rest of the text. These verses are present in most of the medieval Greek manuscripts, but they are absent from virtually all early Greek manuscripts that have come down to us, representing great diversity of textual tradition. They are also missing from the earliest forms of the Syriac and Coptic Gospels, which are translations. So we have a family of Greek texts from our New Testament, but we also have early translations into other languages like Coptic. And that helps us identify what was around at the time of those translations. It's absent from those as well. Um, all the early church fathers omit this narrative. In commenting on John, they pass immediately from 752 to 812. Now, let me explain the significance of that. The early church fathers aren't in and of themselves authoritative. i got a book here. This contains everything we're aware of that the early church wrote in, say, the first hundred years. And what it's incredibly helpful for is to, to notice what they're citing, notice their quotations. So what you can prove, then, is if they're quoting the Gospel of John in the first century, John was written by the first century, if they're quoting other books. And what we've got is early church writers commenting on, referencing John's Gospel, and they, they're, especially when they're referencing chapter 7, and they skip right over it to 8.12. That is telling. It suggests that they don't have this reading if, if you're reading someone who's commenting, discussing John's gospel, and they're discussing through chapter 7, and they just skip, that coincides perfectly with this absence from the oldest text. Moreover, a number of the later manuscripts that include the narrative mark it off with asterisks, indicating hesitancy as to its authenticity, while those that do include it display a rather high frequency of variation. Although most of the manuscripts that include the story place it here, some place it instead in Luke 21, and other witnesses variously place it after John 7.44, John 7.36, or John 21.25. So in, to summarize briefly, internally it breaks the clear flow of the text, it shows a significant amount of variations of differing grammar and style, externally it's absent from the oldest manuscripts and church fathers, and it's, it's found in a variety of locations. Now most of the locations where it does show up is here, but it is very unusual to have a text jumping around, and it seems to indicate that the people copying this simply are unsure of its legitimacy and unsure where to place it, as if they recognize it breaks the flow here. Now, that's all I have to say for this at the moment. I want to summarize, though, with some points what to do with this. Um, you don't have to agree with me. I'm still going to teach this passage. I, I think there's, there's edification and value here. I think it almost certainly happened. It's, it's antiquity. And some of the features of it are really the marks of eyewitnesses' accounts. Um, the fact that the copyists, even with their, their clear awareness that something's up, they wouldn't get rid of it. They, they tried to find places for it. It suggests something as well. It possibly is scripture. The point I care about that of arguing is it doesn't belong here in John. And the reason why I care about that is um, I, I really think in next week you'll see 8.12 answers the end of 7. And without this interruption, then the rest of chapter 8 is the conclusion 
of that last, final, great day at the Feast of Booths. If you include this text, what happens in the rest of eight is some other day. Because, as you see in 753, they went each to his own house, and the next morning Jesus gets up. So it's not the same day. So in regards to teaching through John, I care most strongly about the fact that the rest of eight is the completion. It's going to culminate in Jesus saying, before Abraham was, I am. And they're going to try to kill him. This is all one narrative text. Okay. One other point. If you disagree, that's fine. I would urge you, however, to avoid basing a novel or unique doctrine or teaching from this text alone. I would not think it would be a good idea to try to argue against, say, the death penalty based largely on this text. If you want to try to argue against it, I wouldn't advise doing that. You'd want to use other passages. I wouldn't want this text to bear a whole lot of weight. That being said, as a way of introduction, let's actually proceed into the passage itself. Well, there's no way to get around the double brackets and what the notes in your Bible say. So I don't relish taking this aside, but it's worth addressing. And if you have questions, come talk to me later. Okay, so let's, let's work through the text now. First, the scribes and Pharisees test Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees test Jesus. And we're going to look at this in four points. The where, the who, the what, and the why. Where Jesus sat teaching in the temples. The next day, he goes to the Mount of Olives, and then he comes back, and he's sitting teaching in the temple. And I've already mentioned to you, this is rather common in the Gospels, not so common uh, in John. In fact, it's unique in John. But Jesus is regularly in the synoptic sitting, teaching. He's in the temple. Who? The scribes and the Pharisees. And again, another novel mark. There's no other mention of the scribes in John's Gospel, but this is a regular pairing in the synoptics. What we see is that the opposition to Jesus formulates um, partnerships that are otherwise unnatural. The scribes would be those who are probably Levites, ruling the temple, and the Pharisees. Now, normally, they don't get along. They form the Sanhedrin. The the Pharisees are the more conservative element. They're the uh, Bible um, class, the Bible school synagogue in every town people. The scribes tend to be more liberal. They're the Sadducees. They don't believe in the resurrection. They rule the temple. This, this confederation gets together, and they come to Jesus. So where? In the temple, Jesus teaching the people. Who? The scribes and the Pharisees. What? They brought a woman caught in adultery to Jesus. Now, don't miss this. There's some challenges with this story and understanding it. What's the point? What is Jesus saying? And the, don't miss the fact the narrator explicitly states this woman is, in fact, an adulteress. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. So whatever the solution to this is, it's not that it was a false accusation. The narrator defines her this way. So the text tells us, before they say anything, is, is this a woman who committed adultery? Yes, it is. So however we're going to resolve this, it won't be, well, actually, she isn't really. So we've got to deal with Jesus, not condemning her and all of that. But the solution isn't that she's innocent. The narrator makes it clear, this is an adulteress. And they bring her to Jesus. And you can imagine the tumult and the hubbub. There's a big group of people. The text talks about putting her in his midst. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him. So the picture is a pretty sizable group. There's a circle of people and she's in the middle. And they bring her to Jesus in the temple. This would make, a, this would make some sort of ruckus. Um, and they claim... Point one, that she was caught in the very act of adultery. Now, that's significant. The narrator just says she was an adulteress. The claim they make to Jesus is far more pointed. And, and the, the English's very act is absolutely right from the Greek. 
They're claiming, not just that she's an adulteress, she was caught in the act. And I won't even unpack how that might happen, but it would be rather unusual for someone to actually be caught in the very act of adultery. But that's what they're claiming. Not a lot of, not a lot of circumstances come to mind where that would happen n- normally, right? So they're making a rather bold claim that she was caught in the very act of adultery. And then they pose their question to Jesus. Jesus, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. So what do you say? They said this to test him. They might have some charge to bring against him. They test him. And again, the testing of Jesus is all over. I got a whole list of references. I'm not going to go through them now in the synoptics, but it's unique to John. What's the nature of the test? What are we to make of this? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll close off another means of escape. Um, we know at other times they cite Moses, and their fault is they, they wrongly cite him. You remember the question about divorce? They test him. They say, teacher, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Moses commanded us to, and Jesus says, Moses didn't command you to divorce anybody. Moses gave you a concession if you do this then. So in some instances, they're wrongly citing Moses. Here, they're not doing that. Let's, let's, let's close the next door of escape. They're absolutely right. Moses commands people who are guilty, proven guilty of adultery, get put to death. It's not optional. It's not a suggestion. It's commanded. Let's, let's look. That's not how we're going to resolve the tension here. They're absolutely right in their citation of Moses. Turn to uh, Deuteronomy. Turn to Deuteronomy 22. And keep, keep your finger here. We're going to look at probably two or three other passages in Deuteronomy right around here. So it'll be helpful to, to um, keep your finger here. Deuteronomy 22. 22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. Now, that's that's command. That's not a suggestion. That's not you may. That's telling you what to do. Both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city And you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city. And the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So they're quite right. Given due process, given everything going through and the proof being done, if it's settled, that's what this woman has done. The death penalty is commanded by Moses. That's not how we're going to get out of this. We're not going to resolve this by saying, well, actually, Moses just permitted it. No, they're right. They're dead right. So then what's the nature of their test, their trap? They've accurately cited Moses. They've brought a legitimate adulteress to Jesus. There's two possible explanations. I think one far more likely than the other. One is they simply want to make Jesus look harsh, cruel, uncaring. Some some commentators suggest this. There there might be something to this. Um, Jesus either has to affirm Moses and appear to be rigid and a stickler and and compassionate, or he has to... He can be compassionate, but then they can accuse him of abandoning Moses. I actually think that the the test is more pointed than that. We know in John 19, 
In John 19, when they, they go before Pilate and cry out for Jesus to be put to death, Pilate tells them, in John, sorry, in John 18, 31, he says, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. The, the Jews need Roman permission to execute the death penalty. And they, they reference that here. I think the test is along these lines. If Jesus agrees with Moses and says, stone her, they can accuse that he is lawless, rebellious, not submissive to Roman law. They can go to run to a Roman um, official and say, hey, this would be Messiah, this would be prophet, is contrary to the law of Rome, telling us to put people to death. Or if Jesus doesn't agree with it, they can accuse him of not submitting to the law of Moses and being godless in that sense. I think that's the nature of the test. I think that's the nature of the test. Um, so what do we get from this? One, that they are hypocrites unconcerned with justice. Whatever this is, it's not about concern for holiness in the community, the sacredness of marriage, or avenging the, the cuckolded partner. This is about testing Jesus. The woman's incidental. This is simply an opportunity for them to find some way to accuse him. This, these are not righteous people. These people are hypocrites. These people are corrupt. We, we learn in John chapter 11, why are they so opposed to Jesus? John eleven forty eight. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Ultimately, what they're concerned about is their position. They put up a good show about caring about the law and caring about Moses. But we've already seen even last week that when Nicodemus says, now hold on, does our law condemn someone without giving him a hearing? Are you from Galilee too? We can't be bothered with such things. They're, they're angry. They want what they want. And what they want to do is discredit and accuse Jesus. They want to silence him. They want to have the Romans put him to death, which they will ultimately be successful in. They hope to accuse Jesus of, your blank here is, lawlessness, lawlessness. Either lawlessness in abandoning Moses or lawlessness in disagreeing with Roman law and rule. They can either accuse him before the scripture or before the Roman magistrates. They think they've got him. And the dilemma here, before we look at the resolution, is real. She's really an adulteress. We know that. We've looked and seen, nope, Moses absolutely does command this. That's what Moses prescribes. There's no mistake there. So how will Jesus deal with this? How will Jesus avoid the trap? Which brings us point three to Jesus masterfully exposes their corruption. Jesus masterfully exposes their corruption. Now, don't miss this. Let me just look at just the storytelling of this. Um, a big group of people come such that there's someone in their midst you can imagine it's noisy, it's bustling. Jesus is teaching, sitting in the temple. You can imagine with this trap and the tension, the readers, like, what's he going to do? Jesus is completely unconcerned. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. Notice the movement, the movement in the text. Verse, the end of verse 6, Jesus bent down. Verse 7, he's going to stand up and say something. Here's what's going to happen. They're going to come. Teacher, his response is to ignore them and bend down and start writing with his finger in the ground. Then they're going to press him. He's going to stand up. He's going to say one thing. He's going to bend back down again. The next time he stands up, they're gone. <laughs> Whatever he said was significant. Whatever he said silenced them, made them ashamed, and made them go home. Is that, this is the move. An entire conspiracy is coming to Jesus. Big crowd of people with a woman. And he, he disarms this, diffuses this with one sentence. 
with, with almost neglect of, of not being interested in it. He's not threatened by this. He's not back up against the ropes with this. It's, it's amazing. So Jesus masterfully exposes the corruption. So first, point one, he, ignores, he, he ignored their question, bent down and wrote on the ground. And, and people wonder, what did he write? What did he write? You know what he wrote? We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. And I think that's part of the point. People have speculated. Uh, probably the best speculation, I don't think it's right, is, is Jeremiah 17. In Jeremiah 17, um, we read, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. They have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. It's probably the best guess. But here's, I think, the significance in the text. We're not told. And I think it's to make a point of unconcern. Here's this conspiracy. The scribes and the Pharisees get together. They've got a real dilemma for Jesus. They've got a real adulteress. They're quoting Moses rightly. They bring him to her. What's he going to do? He's going to not be interested and bend down and ignore them. Well, maybe what he's doing is really important. Maybe what he's writing is so important he can ignore them. What was he writing? We don't know. That's how unimportant their concern was. Jesus disregards them to do something that isn't even important enough for us to be told what he was writing. I, I think that's the main point. In other words, I think Jesus sees something wrong in what they're doing. Their concern isn't legitimate. Their charge has a flaw to it. It's not that he's not taking the law of Moses seriously. He's aware from the outset at something corrupt or wrong in what they're doing. Therefore, it doesn't really warrant his attention. They have to pester him. And when they finally pester him, he's just going to stand up. He's going to say one thing. He's going to bend back down again. That's as much of his attention as it deserves. And that little bit of his attention and that one sentence he speaks unravels the whole thing. It's masterful. Absolutely masterful. So, when pressed, Jesus stood up and said, here it is, this, everything, he, he dismantles the whole thing with a sentence. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And so, of course, the question is, what does he mean by this? How does this answer them? How does this defeat them? How does this unravel the conspiracy? Well, let's first identify what Jesus is not doing. Jesus is not correcting or softening the law. Jesus is not correcting or softening the law. Um, this is where I'm saying, if you, if you do think this passage is scripture, if you do think it should be here, please don't use this to try to show Jesus as softening the law. No one said more staunch things about the law than Jesus. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not one jot not the smallest part of a letter will pass away from the law. Do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to establish them. It's Jesus who again and again quotes, it is written. You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. It is written. There is nobody who has a higher view of scripture, including the Old Testament, than Jesus. In fact, for him, scripture would be exclusively the Old Testament. This is not, because this is what, especially more liberal churches you want to see, is this notion that Jesus here is really showing them that if you really understood that we're all sinners, we're all guilty, then really who are we to judge? Who are we to point fingers? That is not what's going on here. That is not what's going on here at all. 
This is not Jesus correcting or softening the law. Jesus is not, to quote one modern teacher, unhitching from the Old Testament. Oh, it's really easy and convenient because there are some things in the Old Testament you read them, you're like, man, that's serious. Even as I read the penalty for adultery or an engaged woman breaking her engagement and, and fornicating with someone, you might think, oh, man, that's, that's serious. That's heavy. That's strict. And the temptation can be, you know what? There is a bunch of mean stuff in the Old Testament, and God in the Old Testament was kind of legalistic, and God in the Old Testament was kind of judgmental. But then Jesus comes along, and God's really loving and forgiving, and it won't do, and it dishonors God. Jesus and the Father are perfectly in step. Jesus does nothing but what he sees his Father doing. You can't pit Jesus against the Father. They're in perfect unity. You could just as easily say Jesus wrote the Old Testament. God wrote the Old Testament. And in complete agreement and in complete unity, the Trinity caused the Scripture to be written. And Jesus, therefore, is the author of the Old Testament. You can't pit Jesus against it. That's not what's going on. And I think if you look at this, we can see what he is saying. The point isn't that only sinless people can point fingers. Only sinless people can bring charges. Even in the New Testament, it becomes clear that's not the case. Matthew 18, if your brother sins, go show him your fault between you and him alone. And we go through that. Even the New Testament proves this isn't some new ethic of, well, we're all sinful, so who am I to judge? So let's just uh, love each other. That's not what's going on here. And neither does the Old Testament or the New Testament corroborate that. I think the key here is in what Jesus says. Point two, Jesus was addressing the witness, or you could put plural, witnesses, that the law required. Let me just read it with the right emphasis on this. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Turn turn back to Deuteronomy. The law is clear about how jurisprudence and guilt is determined. And one of the points it's clear on is that you need witnesses And those witnesses need to be the first to throw the stone. You may have noticed in our readings of of the Old Testament about adultery that there's something very odd about this procedure here. The text is clear. Both the man and the woman need to be put to death. This woman they claimed was caught in the very act. Why then is there only the woman? In what scenario could a woman be caught in the very act of adultery and yet they're unable to bring the man? Now, if it was found out later, you could argue she was confessed it to her husband or something. You might then understand how the other man escaped, or they were unable to find him. He's hiding. But if she was indeed caught in the very act of adultery, they should have been able to bring both of them to Jesus. That's what the law commands. That, I think, is why Jesus, from the outset, doesn't take this very seriously. They're not obeying the Mosaic law. They're hypocrites. They're citing Moses. Moses commanded us. He commanded some other things, too, that you guys seem to have neglected. So I think Jesus is referencing the required witness. Jesus is addressing the witness or witnesses that the law required. Point number one, his hand, the witness, must be the first against her. So if you're in Deuteronomy, turn to 17. Deuteronomy 17. Six through seven. This is one of the things about the law of Moses and its legal code that we get so much of our own jurisprudence, even in our own country, from. This is such wisdom in these principles. 
on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. That's your first point. We need two or three witnesses. Second, the hand of the witness shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of the people. So the point is this. Nobody can make a charge without having to show up, man up, give an account, and then be prepared to give judgment. No one can just, like what we do today with with social media, just make accusations. You need to actually be prepared to, to throw the first stone. And if you're not ready for that, close your mouth. So when Jesus talks about be the first to throw a stone, he's referencing the law of Moses. The law of Moses is explicit about who to throw the first stone is, and it's the witness. They have not brought a witness. And there's some serious questions about what they're doing. Where's the guy? Where's the man? So Jesus speaks, addresses the witness, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Well, what's this up without sin? Well, Jesus could mean sinlessness. I don't think that's what he means. Rather, I think the blank here is he must be righteous in the matter. Turn to Deuteronomy 19. Deuteronomy 19. Verse 15, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So this is the other, this is the other issue with a witness. Not only does the witness need to throw the first stone, the witness needs to be prepared to be cross-examined. And they need to be prepared that if they're found to be a false witness, a malicious witness, whatever they were accusing the other person of falls on their head. This is biblical justice. So there's some serious questions about how this is being done according to Moses. They just bring the woman. They have the claim she was caught in that very act. There's no, where are the witnesses? Where are the witnesses who, if they're wrong, we stone them to death? Understand, that's the stakes in this case. You're bringing the accusation of adultery. Okay, where are your two or three witnesses? And are they prepared to throw the first stone? And are they prepared to be stoned themselves if they're unable to line their stories up? That, that's what I think he's saying. So when he says, let him who's without sin, I would take it to mean something that, where's your righteous witness? Where's your witness who's not corrupt in this? He must be righteous in this matter. And this is part of how David will plead in the Psalms sometimes. Lord, vindicate me according to my righteousness. And you read that and you're like, what do you mean? David's just claiming, as far as this matter is concerned, I'm innocent. I'm not guilty of the particular thing they're accusing me of. So I think what Jesus is saying is I have serious questions about the righteousness and the legality of this charge. I have yet to see a witness. I Don't understand why you're only bringing the woman if she was caught in the very act. Let the witnesses come forward. 
Let them be prepared to throw the first stone. Let them be cross-examined, prepared to receive the punishment on their own heads if they're shown to be corrupt. Point three, he must account for the absence of the man. And your witness who caught them in the very act is going to have to explain how they only brought the woman and not the man. Now, conceivably, maybe he overpowered them. Maybe there's a fist fight. I mean, I suppose there are some scenarios where they could only bring the woman, but they're extraordinary. They'll need to be accounted for. So where is this witness who needs to throw the first stone, this witness who needs to be righteous in the matter, not malicious, and this witness who's going to need to account for the absence of the man? Where is he? And Jesus bends back down and starts writing in the ground again about who knows what. And that's all it takes. That's all it takes. We just read this. I mean, again, it's masterful. They come in a big hustle and bustle. She's in the midst. What do we do? And he ignores them. They press him. He stands up, says one thing, bends back down again. And that did the trick. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And and here's the point. They got Jesus' point. They saw the implied corruption in what they're doing. And nobody is willing to say, I'm the witness, and potentially get stoned to death themselves. I can explain why there's only this woman here and not the man, even though Moses commanded the man as well. Nobody's willing to do that. And as it becomes clear, no one's willing to do that. Anyone who's read Deuteronomy, anyone who's read the Old Testament knows then this is a kangaroo court. This isn't righteous. This isn't right. And presumably the oldest would mean the wisest, the least hot-headed. They go home one by one. In one sense, this passage ends as it began. In verse 753, um, 753, they each went to his own house. There's the dispersion of the Pharisees. Here, one by one, they sort of scatter. And Jesus is, again, not paying them any attention. This isn't worth his time. He's got more important things to do, like write things on the ground. Talk about dismissal. And I I think that makes sense with my reading. This is completely bogus. This is corrupt. And so no, it's not a big problem for me. No, it doesn't demand his attention. No, it's not some urgent issue. Whoa, what am I going to do? He ignores them. They press him. He stands up. He says one thing, and he bends back down. And the one thing he said diffuses the whole thing. The conspiracy breaks down. The people go home. And then we see finally his tenderness. Point C, though, there was no witness who was willing to be examined. There was no witness who was willing to be examined. So then what do we do with the last verses here? We see Jesus' tenderness. And whether or not this is scripture, we know he's tender. We've seen him be tender with the woman at the well. We, we know Jesus is a gentle Messiah. He doesn't break a bent reed or put out a smoldering wick. He is meek and lowly. And everyone leaves. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up. She's worth his attention. And he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. Now, Lord might be a bit strong. I don't, I don't know if there's anything in this text that suggests she's a woman, person of faith. The Greek behind Lord, Korios, could mean sir, Mr., Lord. Context determines. If she's saying Lord, then perhaps she has some belief about him as Messiah. If she's just saying sir, not so much. Then he says, then neither do I condemn you. From now on, sin no more. So do we, what do we make of this? What is Jesus doing? Is Jesus here turning, turning a blind eye to adultery? We've been told she is an adulteress. 
even though the legal proceedings are totally bankrupt, totally corrupt, totally contrary to the law of Moses, she is in fact guilty of adultery, is Jesus here saying, I, I, don't, I don't condemn people for adultery. I don't, I don't think so. I think the point here is, accordingly, Jesus would not condemn her to death. That the question brought to Jesus is, will Jesus agree with Moses, she should be stoned to death? Well, when Jesus indicates, you guys haven't followed the law of Moses, there aren't any witnesses, the protocol's not been followed, there's all sorts of questions raised, why do you only have her and not the man? Well, without due process, without this being done properly, no, I don't condemn her either, to death. In other words, he's speaking here, I think, as someone under the law. The law has not been rightly followed. There is no warrant to condemn someone. In fact, we read in Deuteronomy, you won't condemn someone without two or three witnesses. Well, Jesus, there's no two or three witnesses, so I don't condemn you. In other words, Jesus is following his own counsel from what he said in 724. Look at 7, John 7, 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. According to the law of Moses, what do you do with people, guilty or innocent, when there's no two or three witnesses? You don't condemn them, right? This is, again, our legal model is built after this. I think I've heard someone say we'd rather let 10 guilty people go free than convict one innocent person. And so not simply guilt is at stake in our legal system, but process, and making sure the process is carried out. And sometimes guilty people go free because, because the police, because prosecutors make mistakes, don't do things properly. They get off on technicalities. The law of Moses is the same thing. There are people who got away with crimes in the Old Testament because there weren't two or three witnesses. And it's a better legal code that lets that happen than a legal code that just condemns everybody. And so Jesus is, I think, saying nothing more than, according to Moses, then I don't condemn you to death either. And I think to prove the point that he's not excusing her sin, I don't condemn you, his last statement addresses her sin. Go sin no more. In other words, Jesus does indeed recognize her adultery as sin. The, the, the requirements of the Mosaic law are not met. She's not to be put to death. But Jesus isn't saying, and adultery is fine. I'm fine with that. I'm not judgmental. I'm nice like that. No, he tells her don't sin anymore. It's exactly what he told the paralytic by the pool in John 5. Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse happens to you. So, in this passage, be it scripture or not, we're reminded of the corruption of the Pharisees and the scribes. We're reminded that these are not serious, righteous people making honest mistakes. These are conniving, plotting, wicked, hypocritical, unrighteous people intent on accusing Jesus. That's totally true. And again, we're reminded of how masterful and in control our Messiah is. he's He's not troubled. He's not befronted by this conspiracy. In fact, he ignores it initially. And masterfully, with one, just says one thing, just lifts his head, says one thing. He dismantles the whole thing. He reveals the corruption. He convicts them of their sin. And we see his tenderness with this woman. You can imagine how terrified she must have been a bunch of angry Pharisees and scribes calling for her blood to be stoned to death. And Jesus encouraging her to go and sin no more. So from this we see the greatness of our Messiah, the wickedness of his enemies, and his compassion. Let's close in a word of prayer. I'll call the worship team up to sing our closing song. Lord God, we rejoice in a Messiah who is so compassionate, so kind so wise, so 
able to deal with his opponents. Here with words, but when he comes again with the sword of his mouth. And we rejoice to be those who receive his compassion and kindness. And Lord, we don't want to be his enemies. We don't want to be those plotting his downfall. For all who do that will fail. We want to hear the words of Psalm 2. Rejoice the trembling. Honor the son, lest he be angry in his wrath. Let us be those who find refuge in him. Blessed are all who find refuge in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.